The concept of serving your nation and recognizing higher goals and higher callings is something that changes your perspective and who you are. Whether it's military service or some other form of service, uh, we're fortunate to be in a nation that's given us a lot of benefits. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So today on the Neurosurgery Podcast, we're joined by not a neurosurgeon, but an orthopedic surgeon who specializes in spinal surgery. We're here today with David Polly, who was a former president of the SRS, and the SRS is the Scoliosis Research Society. It is probably the most academic and uh, revered and storied organization of spine surgeons in the world. I'll say that as a non-member. Uh, by way of disclosure, but uh, we're very lucky to have David uh, today with us. David, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Mike. So, David, why don't we start out by having you introduce yourself? I know many of our listeners know who you are because you're known around all of these channels of spinal neurosurgeons, but maybe for the younger listeners, introduce us to who you are, where you grew up, where you educated, and all that. So, I was born in Stuttgart, Germany when my dad was in the Army. Uh, and then we moved back to the States, and I grew up on the East Coast, sort of the Washington, New York corridor. And then I went to West Point. I spent two years after West Point in the Army Corps of Engineers, and I did Airborne Ranger and Pathfinder training. Uh, so I had a previous uh, wow. different aspect to my life. And then I went back to the military medical school in Bethesda, Maryland. From there, I did my training at Walter Reed. And from Walter Reed, I went to University of Minnesota to do the John Moe Spine Fellowship and then came back to Walter Reed as the chief of orthospine. Was that Minnesota Twin Cities spine? Is that? Well, so this, it started out as the John Moe uh, Twin Cities Spine Fellowship. They diverged and had two separate fellowships going at that time, and then they subsequently have come back together. Uh, but it's, uh, it's different than when, when I was there. Uh, but... Uh, I then went back to Walter Reed, where my colleague, Dr. Steve Andra, was the chief of neurosurgery. Oh, I was going to ask you about that, but I'll come back to that. Please continue. So Steve and I started working together, and as far as we know, we had the first combined ortho-neuro-spine service uh, at the time, and this was probably uh, 1992. 293 time frame and that uh, it was actually pretty easy for us in the military because there were no issues about who got paid for what we were all salaried government employees mm-hmm. struggling to get all our time and and take care of our patients to work together was actually absolutely a joy and we took on things that uh, neither of us had quite figured out yet Steve used to say there were things that he wouldn't do and there were things that I wouldn't do, but together there wasn't anything we weren't stupid enough to try to do. Wow. <laughs> now, Steve and Steve Andra and uh, Chris Shaffey are probably the two neurosurgical leaders into the space of deformity, right? They were the first two probably major names in that. But, uh, you know, let me, let me go back to your military training. So 
it seems like a lot of the folks that we've talked to who do these complex, giant spinal deformity surgeries, and for the young listeners, these are probably the largest surgical interventions done in man. I, I would say, I tell my patients when someone has a major deformity surgery, it's way bigger than a heart transplant in any measure. Uh, and that really blows their mind. And so the the reality is you have a military background. Steve Andre had a military background. Chris Shaffrey had a military background. Is there something about having that discipline that lends itself well to these really complex surgeries? So one of the things that uh, that you get good at in a number of military settings is planning. And specifically, if you think about, okay, we're gonna invade Normandy in World War II, think about the logistical planning that goes into that. So there is a ethos or a mindset in the military for planning. Uh, plans don't always work out the way you intend them to, but you always need to have a plan. The other thing about the military, at least at the time that I was in, that if I wanted implants, I had to submit a requisition for them two weeks before the surgery, and that it was illegal to bring them in without that requisition. Oh, wow. It's, and, and so wow. No, not only did you have to plan for what you were going to use, you had to decide how likely was it that something was going to go wrong, and you had to order in the stuff for the backup plan at the same time. So I remember seeing a book not too long ago about the quartermaster of the Civil War. And, and for people who aren't in the military, maybe they aren't familiar with this concept of logistics. But the quartermaster is the person who makes sure you have food and clothing and ammunition, right? And that's what you're talking about. You're talking about you can't just show up and expect a case to happen, right? Right. So, so the detailed, intense, preoperative planning was something that I got very good at, mainly from my... Uh, probably the best thing for me in planning was the, my Army Ranger training, that they really emphasized what in the military are called operations orders. And so if you're going to go attack an enemy outpost, you have to say, all right, we're going to cross what's called the line of departure at 0400, which means that we have to be in the staging area at 0300, which means that we have to have supplies, ammo, food ready at 0200, which means that it's got to be brought in by the trucks by 0100. And so all of those things go into preparation. And so that is how my mindset works for thinking about spine surgery. So first it's like, okay, what does it take to fix it? All right, so my sagittal parameters are this, my coronal alignment's this, we need to go T2 to the pelvis, I need to do osteotomies at these levels. Okay, how long is that gonna take me? What equipment do I need? Do I need neuromonitoring? Do I need cell saver? We routinely use a number of things like tranexamic acid at a high dose, et cetera, et cetera. And so that literally on the, in the OR, we have whiteboards and I write a brief out on the whiteboard about what we're going to do, who the patient is, what the procedure is, how we're going to position them, what the steps are. When do you are. do that? You do it the morning of or Be the night before? before? Well, we can't do it the night before because the whiteboards tend to get erased. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so the morning of, you get up extra early to do this. Yes. So we have, it's, it's a requirement now in our organization and that we've sort of set the standard on the spot. And the organization you're talking about is University of Minnesota? Correct. Okay. And that uh, the other thing that I do to hold myself accountable is I write on the whiteboard how long it's going to take, skin to skin. Can't judge how long it's going to take anesthesia, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I write on the whiteboard how long it's going to take me skin to skin and what my blood loss is going to be. And I hold myself accountable for that. And that level of detail helps lead to confidence in the team. And they, uh, I've got, 
Unless you're wrong, right? I mean, if you're always wrong, then that's... That, that's true, but if you don't put a stick in the ground, a stake in the ground to say, it's going to take me four hours to do this, and you don't look to see how long did it actually take you, you'll never get better at it. Oh, I see. So it's, it's a marker, I'm gonna, it's going to take me this long. And it doesn't matter how long you say, it matters how long it's going to take. And so the key thing is trying to be honest with people. You know, the classic line of, oh, yeah, it's going to take us five minutes to do this. An hour later, you're still doing it. <laughs> right, right. So, so just tell people, what, however long it's going to take you is however long it's going to take you. Tell them that. And then what, when, when we do our preoperative brief, the anesthesia team really only cares about, okay, you're doing neuromonitoring or not. What anesthetic considerations do we have? How long is it going to take? And what's the blood loss going to be? And then my scrub tech and circulator are looking at what's the instrumentation plan? Do they have the right equipment? Is it ready to go? Do we need a, a fancy different screwdriver to take out whatever's in there? And so that really has been a key part of uh, being able to improve our efficiency intraoperatively. That's great. That's great. But how did you get to um, the idea that you would be doing primarily, and I, I'm not saying that you only do spinal deformities, but you're known for that, right? How did you get to that point? In other words, you know, you're an orthopedic surgeon, you're treating all these things in the military, and then you say, wow, I really want to tackle that. So uh, the person I followed at Walter Reed was the first person in the military to do a spine fellowship. His name was Bruce Van Dam, uh, incredibly talented surgeon, first military guy to do a spine fellowship and he did the Minnesota Spine Fellowship. And so uh, Walter Reed is the, was the only place in the military that had a pediatric heart surgeon and a number of other things. So all of the complicated scoliosis, pediatric congenital things came to Walter Reed. And I literally had a uh, scoliosis clinic that had patients that came from around the world. I think my favorite story, uh, patients would complain about how long it took them to get there. I took care of a, of a child of the defense attache in Moscow, and oh, wow. he would commute back and forth to Walter Reed for his care, and it took him two days of airplane rides each way to get to clinic. Wow, so for the listeners who don't know, and we have international listeners too, so Walter Reed is now merged with Bethesda, which are the Army and military uh, hospital systems for America, and so these are basically the sons and daughters of servicemen, and uh, mili- well, as you say, military folks, right? Yes. And so I, I had a uh, probably about a third to a half of my practice at Walter Reed was scoliosis. Wow. So you were the referral center for the entire U.S. Well, military. Well, so, so there were other places like uh, uh, the uh, Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego mm-hmm. would do that. And then uh, Wilford Hall at the time in San Antonio, which is where Reg Hayde was when he was in the service. And so each of the services sort of had their big, a couple of big places. Not all of them did it. But I was the place that had the most resources. Like I said, we had the only military pediatric heart surgeon uh, on on active duty. It's amazing how many folks on the podcast have been military, ex-military, yourself, Chris Shaffrey, uh, Reg Haidt, as you said, has been on the podcast. Dan Resnick was at Wolford Hall as well. I think it was Air Force, right? Uh, or Army. And Wilford Hall was Air Force. Air Force, yeah. And uh, Lou Toomey Allen. Uh, a lot of folks in the military, so thank you for your service. And I think that there's, my dad used to say, and I, I did not serve in the military, uh, but he said that he, he would like it if all Americans were, were forced to do two years like the Israelis or the Chinese well, in well, the military. The, the concept of serving your nation and recognizing higher goals and higher callings is something that 
changes your perspective and who you are. Uh, and I think that whether it's military service or some other form of service, some the concept of serving and giving back to uh, we're fortunate to be in a nation that's given us a lot of benefits that we owe a responsibility to give back to the to the nation. And I think that's true of everybody everywhere that you get things from your nation state and that you give things back to your nation state. And then the challenge is sometimes you agree with what your nation state is doing and sometimes you don't. In the military, you didn't have a choice about, you could disagree, but you couldn't do something different from what you were told to do. You had to follow orders, right? Yes. Yeah. And I, I love that because we're in election year and it's apolitical. And I mean, you know, John F. Kennedy is iconic in the Chinese-American uh, lexicon because he's the one who opened the doors so that Chinese could escape the Chinese Exclusion, Exclusion Act. He was a Democrat. And, and his what was his statement? It was something like, ask... Not what you can do, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Yeah, yeah. I love that quote from JFK. And there's a picture of JFK that hangs inside of my house uh, because of my parents came uh, from from Asia uh, under, under that era. Um, so let's go back to the scoliosis. So originally what I wanted to ask you about was this concept, because things are changing now, and, and we just had a debate here at the spine section about this. So orthopedics uh, and neurosurgery. So, you know, guys like Chris Shaffrey, they did two residencies, essentially. They're double boarded in ortho and neuro, but they're very rare. And we see more and more neurosurgeons doing deformity surgery, adult deformity surgery. What do you think about that? Is, is there, and of course, you know, we know that every surgeon is unique with their own skill set and their practice patterns and indications, but this has been a relatively big change as well in the SRS, right? So you've been president of Scoliosis Research Society. You've seen neurosurgical membership go from zero to, you know. About 15 to 20%. To 20%, yeah. <laughs> what, what do you think about this trend? Are we, are we growing too fast in that field? Do we need better education? Should we not be in this space? Tell me your thoughts on this. So that's a great question, Mike, and, and that uh, I've always been an advocate that you should do what you're trained to do. If you're not trained to do something or you do it poorly, do something else. Mm -hmm. So when I came back to Walter Reed, the neurosurgery service was very good at cervical spine work. So I basically didn't do cervical spine. Uh, but I worked closely with them in deformity, and Steve Andra learned a lot from, actually when he was a resident, learned a lot from Bruce Van Dam, and then learned a lot from me. And that uh, it's, a, it's a funny story because Steve was the first neurosurgeon to join the SRS. And he started doing deformity. Uh, after he got out of the military, he went to uh, uh, Ypsilanti, Michigan, at Michigan Brain and Spine at the time. Uh, and he started doing this, and he and I would talk. We were good friends. We actually started together at West Point. And, uh, and I said, Steve, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to see the highest level of the game. I didn't tell him he couldn't because he technically could, uh, but it's like if you're gonna do it, and I know your standards, learn what the highest standards mm -hmm. are and perform to those standards. So I invited him to the SRS annual meeting, and at that time you had to either be a member or have an invitation. What year is this? So I invited him for about four years in a row. And finally he came to the first time he came was in 1997 in St. Louis okay. when uh, Keith Bridwell was the local host. Uh, and Keith Bridwell was Larry's senior partner, Larry Linky's senior partner at the time. And uh, Keith had been raised in a school uh, where uh, 
there was active animosity between orthopedic surgeons and neurosurgeons. There still is a little bit, I think. There are right? still schools and that there are some parts of the country where that is the case, and, and it's bi-directional. Uh, I have a colleague from Walter Reed who's a neurosurgeon in Montana who told me recently, uh, as he was referring a patient to me, that uh, that he tried to actively uh, preclude orthopedic spine surgeons from coming to Montana because then there weren't enough neurosurgeons to take the head trauma call. Oh, I see. And so there are a myriad of issues that do occur. And, and those of us in large urban areas, that's a, it's a different setup than people doing uh, more rural medicine. Uh, but, but what I said to Steve was, come see how this is. And he came and Steve ended up hitting it off with Keith Bridwell Rumor had it was because they both had very white hair at the time. <laughs> <laughs> they do. Both, they both do. That's and, true. And that, that led to Steve becoming actively involved. He said to me at that meeting, he said, I found my people because he was doing adult deformity work. And when he would go to, at that time, the organized neurosurgery meetings, that wasn't a topic. And then he found out where the topic was. And then he became the first one to go through the SRS process as a neurosurgeon. Chris Shaffrey was already in, but he was, as you said, duly boarded. And so Steve was the one who broke the neurosurgery barrier line, if you will, uh, for becoming active in the SRS. So let's, let's take it to a different level in terms of a person's self-awareness. So let's say you're a neurosurgeon and you didn't do a fellowship specifically teaching deformity principles or techniques, right? So, you know, you can do a deformity fellowship like with Chris Shaffrey, but let's say you didn't even do a spine fellowship. That's probably the more common situation. And you're out there practicing and you start to do deformity surgery. How do you know you're good enough? You know, you said you should do what you're good at, but what? But it's a gray zone, right? Right, so, so I guess, Mike, I would come back and say, when you first started putting in pedicle screws on your own, outside of your training, um, you probably weren't as good at it as you are today. Of course not, yeah, absolutely not. Okay, and so that you have to have uh, incremental steps. If it takes you 20 minutes to screw, you cannot do a T2 to pelvis. The patient will be on the OR table. Too. See how many screws is that? I'm just trying to think, uh, it's 10 plus another six, it's 32 screws. So that would be how long? That would be 10 hours to put the screws in, right? Just to put the screws in. Right, yeah. right. So, so you have to be able to efficiently do things in order not to hurt the people just from being under anesthesia for that long. And then the next piece is, do you understand the parameters? Now, it used to be that when we talked about cob angles and sagittal balance that I got the blank stare like you were talking to me about uh, uh, MCA aneurysms or something, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that now that's changing because you're talking about it. And so the issue then becomes, do you know enough about it to have a good plan for what you're fixing? Do you know what needs to be fixed? Do you have a good plan for it? And can you execute it with an acceptable level of morbidity? So I will tell you that I think as a neurosurgeon, there's a, a different concern that I don't think I see as much in ortho. And this probably goes to how we're sort of ideologically a little bit different, right? And there's a principle that occurs, and I know everybody that's a neurosurgeon is aware of this, that if you can do it and get away with it, 
then maybe you should just do it. And, and this is to me a little bit scary because what we have seen is this trend where, um, let's just say folks are doing really big surgeries on people that maybe don't need such a big surgery because they can, right? So, so, it, so this is a concern of mine too, in, in the same way that you could be concerned that the person doesn't have the capability to do the surgery, right? Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure, so in a li little bit, it speaks to the training programs that we come through. Uh, so that classic neurosurgery, uh, you know, uh, when, when ortho and neuro would do cases together, classic neurosurgery was decompress the neural elements. And then ortho did the, the instrumentation and the bone work. And that was the way that it broke out. And my experience rotating on the neurosurgery service at Walter Reed as a resident and, and watching the development was that, you know, lumbar discectomy, you, you do a six-week follow-up and if they're doing fine, you're done. Whereas orthopedic surgery, whether it was total joint replacement or scoliosis surgery, you regularly saw people at six weeks, three months, six months, one year, two years, and then like every five years after that. And so in the world of spinal deformity, you're not doing a lumbar discectomy. The follow-up needs to be longer. And if you don't follow the patients, you don't see the sequelae of broken rods and pseudarthrosis and sagittal imbalance and the problems that go with that. So if you're gonna if you're gonna take on a disease process, you have to be familiar with sort of the natural history and course of the disease with or without interventions to be able to say, all right, what is the appropriate follow-up? And it's a much greater burden uh, in spine deformity than it is in doing ACDFs or lumbar discectomies or spinal stenosis. Yeah, it's like the old saying, right? Nothing ruins your outcomes like, like follow-up, follow right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you're right, because not only is the patient investing more in you, there's more risk, but also the, 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 the as you say, the, the whole spectrum of sequelae is so much bigger. There's so many more things that can go wrong, right? You're changing the patient a lot more, so you really need to follow these people for life almost, right? Right, and, and you need to understand, uh, so when I talk to my adult deformity patients, I tell them, you know, you're gonna have trouble putting on your shoes and socks. You're gonna change the way you walk. You're gonna change the way you wipe your butt. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest complaints, isn't it? Wiping yourself, they can't always well, do it, Well, you, right? you can't lean over and wipe, it's different. And so unless you prepare the patients for that, then they're gonna be unhappy. And so it's, it's, do you have an understanding of what's going on? And where I learned that from was I operated at Walter Reed on a past president of the American Operating Room Nurses Association who'd had a scoliosis surgery and had a flat back syndrome and needed a revision. And she came back to clinic and told me, you didn't tell me I was gonna walk differently. I said, well, what do you mean? And then she showed me and explained it and I had a aha moment. And so now that's a routine part of my patient teaching and my resident teaching is to, to go through. That's this great. is how it's gonna change things. And where that gets even more important is when you're doing this on kids because they've got a whole lifetime ahead of them. And that if you aren't prepared to address those issues, then you probably ought to not do that surgery. Mm -hmm. Trauma, tumors, acute things where um, neurologic decline is happening. We all get that. And then you gotta do what you gotta do to save the patient's life. 
Rarely in scoliosis are you doing life-saving surgery with a potential difference of like the high-grade pediatric congenital deformities with myelopathy. So this has been very informative and I'm, I'm glad we have you on. Almost all our guests are neurosurgeons. I, I want to conclude with something I think is important. We have a lot of female listeners and a lot of younger people and, uh, th- and things are changing in the world. Um, you, I think, have taken a special role in, in our field in, um, in collaborating, and I don't want to say mentoring because it sounds like it's, it's, there's too much of a gap, but incorporating um, female neurosurgeons doing these big, giant operations uh, into your practice at University of Minnesota, right? So I have uh, two female neurosurgery colleagues, uh, Ann Parr and Kristen Jones. Uh, Ann Parr did a spine fellowship at Miami, and then she came up and joined us, and so I've had the privilege of working with Ann. And then Kristen Jones finished her neurosurgery training at Minnesota and then did a year fellowship with me. Uh, She has been my partner for the last five, six years, and I thoroughly enjoy working with her. Uh, It's funny that you get to work with people in the OR enough that you stop talking in sentences and you just start communicating with um, non, non-word clues and that that's when it gets really fun. And it also, uh, it's also been fun to uh, see people grow to the point where instead of me telling them what I think, I get to ask them what they think. And that difference of opinion oftentimes leads to insight that otherwise wouldn't have occurred. That's great. I think, I think you've done a great service not only to our country, but our specialty, meaning spine surgery as a whole. Uh, and David, I, it's, it's always a pleasure to be at a meeting with you and, and, uh, and share thoughts because you're a real icon. So thank you for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast today. Thank you. Mm-hmm.